Glad you guys are here. Uh, we started a series a couple of weeks ago. Is that kind of loud? Feels like it's a little bit loud. Is it okay? They're working on it. My wife would say, you're always loud. So <laughs> She told me to use my inside voice. I'm like, I don't have one of those. <laughs> um, so we started a series a couple of weeks ago called Why? And so we talk, we've been talking about how we've been challenged, I think, in church world to not ask questions. We feel like if we have any doubt, <clears throat> excuse me, any doubt whatsoever, that somehow that doubt disqualifies, disqualifies us from following Jesus. And I don't know who taught us that. Um, I felt like I learned some of that in the early days as well. Um, just don't ask questions, just go with the flow, that kind of thing. And the danger of that is we get caught up in a lot of tradition, and we're not sure exactly why we're doing what we're doing. So it's always good to ask questions. Don't ever stop. Jesus brought 12 guys on the scene, and for three years, all they did constantly was ask him questions, and that was a good thing. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. So don't, <clears throat> don't be afraid to ask questions. As a matter of fact, I think we would probably do better to maybe not feel like we have all the answers. Sometimes, sometimes we feel like we're so certain about things and so dogmatic. And there are some things we can be dogmatic about, and I believe that, but some things I think we need to just be open to, asking some questions and allowing God to talk to us in ways maybe we haven't expected. So last week, we talked a little bit about why God doesn't answer our prayers, and it was a really, really tough question. Went into that, so if, you're, if, you, had, if you had a chance to see that and you know kind of what we talked about, we talked about the purpose of prayer isn't to get God to do our will, but to get to know God so we can learn how to do His will. So it's a big deal. Um, you want to check that out, you can go on our website and find out a little more information about that. But this week, we want to we ask another tough question, um, and this is super simple, but it's probably the question that most people ask. If you haven't asked it yet, um, you're going to ask it, and it's okay to ask the question, that's this. Why do bad things happen to good people? Anybody ever asked that question? <laughs> so we've been talking at DCF for years and years and years about the fact that God is good. <clears throat> I've taught into this millions of times about the fact that God being good is the linchpin to all theology. If you don't believe God is good, we are in trouble. Let's be honest. If God is not good, we are in big, big trouble. And see, so if you study history at all, if you study other religions, so often you see God's created, God's created in man's image, and it's just some kind of amplification of who God is. You see in, in Greek philosophy, you see some of the Greek gods, they're just amplification of a bunch of broken people. Zeus, and you go through all these lists, and the Roman gods as well, almost um, duplicates of these guys. They're all just people, dysfunctional families, <laughs> amplified to a godlike level. And they're coming down and sleeping with, you know, with, um, with people on the earth. The gods are coming down. So it's just all kinds of brokenness. And the reason why is because what we typically do, thank you so much, Alan. Um, what we typically do is we, we end up <clears throat> creating God in our image rather than recognizing that we were created in God's image. So we're going to ask some questions about why do bad things happen to good people. Another way to put that is why is there suffering in the world? Anybody ever ask that question? Ever curious about why there's suffering in the world? It's one we get a lot as Christians from people who are not Christians. If God is so good, then why does he allow that? So we're going to jump into that. We, hear, we say it all the time, God is good. We're into it. But I, I promise you, at some point in your life, if you have asked this question, you've doubted God, you felt like a little bit, is that, can I actually even say that? You know, in small group, can I bring that up? Can I, somebody says, you have any questions? You're like, yeah, um, the circumstances are telling me that God's not good, and how do I know, how do I fix that? How do I get past that? How do I understand it? So um, we see it all the time. We see suffering in the world. We see suffering in our own life. We see challenges around us, and the circumstances keep telling us something about God that may or may not be true. 
But here's the challenge. I just want to, I want to challenge us to ask the hard questions. Don't be afraid to ask the question because if we never ask the question, we're never going to get to the bottom of it. So we hear this all the time. Why did God let that happen? Anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever asked that? Something tragic happens in life, especially to someone you perceive as good. And you're like, why, would, why does that happen? Why did that happen to somebody that, that loves God, that are you know, they're serving God with all their heart? All these things are happening. And so we're going to try to get to the bottom of that. We want to ask that question. It's a question that's been asked since the beginning of time. As a matter of fact, 300 years before the birth of Jesus, there was a Greek philosopher named Epicurus, and he came to these conclusions. I'm going to put these on the, sc- the screen. Questions that he asked 300 years before Jesus. If God is not able to prevent evil, then he's not all-powerful. Have you heard that one? Here's the second part of it. If God is not willing to prevent evil, then he's not all good. So he ended up, this philosopher ended up with this conclusion. If God is both willing and able to prevent evil, then why does evil exist? His struggle obviously was with the question, the the incongruence of, you know, I see this happening. I see this is who God's supposed to be. This is my perception of God. And can I just tell you that the problem with all these questions is we ask the question, and if we're not careful, we want to answer the question with our own perspective. We want to answer the question with our own wisdom, our own intelligence. And all of that, all of that is limited. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that people believed the earth was flat. Now, some of you guys might still believe the earth is flat. We will pray for you. <laughs> but there's literally people now. I mean, there's a, they, I just saw an interview the other day with some couple on the, on the street, and they said, you know, I totally believe that the earth is flat. And the question was, well, why do you believe the earth is flat? And she said, I had an uncle once who sailed out from a port in Canada, and he never came back. So I'm very convinced that he sailed off the edge of the earth. I'm like, I just don't know how you, <laughs> I don't even know how you get there. You have to want to get there, right? So we, we ask these questions and we try, if we're not careful, we try to come back with our own wisdom. So here's the thing, evil and suffering in scripture is not contrary to the story of the Bible, it's actually central to the story of the Bible. And so often we miss that. We want to argue, we want to, someone asks us a question, say, if your God is so good, then why do, why do children get cancer, right? It's a valid question, because if you don't know God, if you don't know who he is, you ask that question, and it feels like if you don't know, especially as a young believer, you don't know who God is, you don't know his character, you don't know his nature, you don't know some theology, you know, and theology is just the study of God, that's all it is. If you don't know, then you're just going to go, I, I have no answer for that. And listen, can, can I just say that that's okay? It's okay if you don't have an answer. You don't have to come up with something, but it turns out that God has done a pretty good job of revealing who he is and why he does what he does. So that doesn't mean I'm going to like it. <laughs> and that seems to be the problems, a problem that comes out a lot of time is that God reveals something to me. He's the God of revelation. I don't get to choose who he is or what he's like. I can make him up, which is what all other religions do, by the way, is they create some semblance of a God that makes sense in their own head. God must be like this. I, I want God to be like this. I, I see the world around me, and I've come to this conclusion. And so I'm using the, this earthly existence to define someone who is not earthly, right? Um, there's a, I've talked about this many times, but the Big Bang Theory 
fascinates me. And some people are troubled by that as believers, but I love it. It was when that was discovered, and you know, this was uh, Einstein, Hubble, some of the guys in the coming out of the early uh, 19th century. When they discovered, you know, E equals M C squared was this theory of rel- relativity, and he he wrote into his equation. He had to pick a number for his equation, and he wrote into the equation that the universe is constant. He used a number that proved the universe. He pulled it out of thin air, guys. Just this is Einstein. He pulled that number. Literally, he admitted this. He pulled that number out of thin air because his perception of the universe was it must be constant because he didn't he didn't have revelation. He didn't have understanding or wisdom that was beyond that. So he made that, that decision to pull that number out of thin air. And then Hubble discovered when telescopes got good enough that he could see stars with a red tint to them as, because they were moving away. It was the, the way the waves, uh, the light waves come back to you when they're moving away is in a, in a red spectrum. And when they discovered this, Einstein went and Hubble showed him on the telescope and he came back later and he said, this is the greatest mistake. This is what Einstein said. This was the greatest mistake of my life. And he said, I'm so, this, this to me was the worst thing I ever did in my scientific career, to choose that number arbitrarily because it didn't make sense to me. And he changed it, by the way. He had to go back and he had to change it. Why? Because God is a God of revelation. But here's what's so important about that. If you backtrack the Big Bang, you get back to this one point in time where everything that is came from something that was not. So out of nothing, something came to be, which means that anything that is something isn't God, right? That means that something besides time, energy, space, something besides that created time, energy, and space. And so God says this in Scripture so many times. He says, I am altogether not like you. And and that's where we get it wrong. We think that he is like us rather than letting the revelation of God say it's actually we that are somewhat like him, right? We are created in his image. We cannot create him in our image. But the Bible does a great job of revealing pain and evil and suffering. There's countless expressions of anguish, confusion, rage even. So many things you see in Scripture that if you're not careful won't line up with the revelation of God. So let me just give you an example. Jeremiah, the Bible called him a weeping prophet. He's wailing about the unrepentance of the people of Israel, and he doesn't understand why God's people will not repent when, when they clearly they know who he is. He has demonstrated himself so many times. King David, the Bible says, was the man after God's own heart. He's crying out in the Psalms, God, are you listening? Do you care? Are you even there? He always comes back, by the way, and answers his own questions because of the revelation of God. John the Baptist in the New Covenant, his sole purpose, John the Baptist's sole purpose was to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of Jesus. He was wrongly arrested. He was awaiting execution, and he sent word to Jesus, are you the one? He went through a state. This was his cousin. He, he was, he's seen the stories. He's seen Jesus do some miracles. He'd seen miracles happen in his own life. He was a product of a miracle. The story, you, read, you can read the story of, of his mother and his father and an angel appearing to his dad. I mean, it's a phenomenal story, right? He walks in this, and somewhere in his mind, in his heart, circumstances are telling him, I'm not sure. It goes back to the original question the devil always asked, did God really say? So it's always an opportunity for doubt. There's always an opportunity to perceive God and, and to ascribe to him something that is not true of him. And we have to make a choice when that happens, when there is a gap, what are you going to put in the gap? The question is, is there evidence for one thing over the other? And I believe there is. 
There's another guy in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, his name was Asaph. And so Asaph was a poet, he was a prophet. The Bible says one place that he was the leader of the choir tabernacle, so huge, creative guy. Twelve Psalms, at least specifically, are attributed to this man, Asaph. And this is what he wrote in Psalm 73. He says, what does God know? This is the New Living Translation, which is not a translation, by the way, it's a paraphrase. So keep that in mind, but it really brings this out. He said, what does God know? They asked, does the Most High even know what's happening? You ever felt like that? (laughs) God, do you even, I've said it literally. God, do you even know what's going on down here? Have you lost your contact lenses, fell off your throne? You know, you're looking under the chair for them. What's going on? Verse 12 says, look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. You hear that in this culture right now all the time, right? Verse 13, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Now that's a question. Have I, have I tried? Have I tried to do the right thing so much? Have I done it for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. That makes a lot more sense after you turn 50. I'm just saying. <laughs> you went to bed, everything was fine, and you woke up and like, I, I don't know what, did I hurt it in the middle of the night? Did Karen come in and whack me when I was, you know, what happened? My arm is hurting and it wasn't hurting before. My, my, my wife's brother said on, on this 40th birthday, she called him, his, this was her oldest brother, he's passed away. And anyway, he's in heaven, but she called him and she said, on his 40th birthday, she said, happy birthday, what does it feel like to be 40? He said, boo, this is what he called her, boo, he goes, I woke up this morning, and he said, my arm fell right off. <laughs> he said, I, get, I had to get my wife to sew that thing back on, and I think that's going to be the story of my life from here on out. He was a runner. He was super athletic. But you know you know the feeling, the circumstances, even if it's not physical. I wake up, and there's pain every day, and I look out there, and I want to ignore it. I want to stick my head in the sand. But we can't ignore it because here's, here's, a, here's a truth that we're going to begin to understand, that part of the challenge is that we were called to end suffering. We were called to speak to pain. We were called to be the solution and not the problem because God has made us co-heirs and he wants us to co-labor with him to bring heaven into earth. We saw that this morning. Karen was, in, in, you know, was inspiring us. This is what the Lord is saying. This is what he's doing. The dry bones, are they're, they're rattling. Something's going on. If we ascribe to the Lord who he is, if we align ourselves with him, we're going to see more of his truth come, come forth and less of the circumstances, and that's something we're going to get into. So let's just wade in deep. So let me, let me say this before I do this, that I might not have all the answers. As a matter of fact, I'm certain I don't have all the answers, and I'm not going to pretend that I do. But I do want to say this. God can handle your doubt. So don't be afraid to ask the question, be, but be intellectually honest. Don't just speak the question out of the hurt and the pain and the suffering. If you do that and all you ever do is just allow your hurt and your pain and suffering to come out, then all it's going to ever express is hurt and pain and suffering. You have to make a choice about what you're going to do with the, discon, uh, you know, the, the, the incongruence of the, the circumstances in who God says he is. And it turns out that part of the reason why God is saying something about who he is and who he is in you is to come back and speak to the the world's pain and suffering and and all the challenges that come. So that's part of what he's doing. So here's the big question. If God is loving, why would he allow suffering? So the answer is simple. I'm going to give you a logical answer and I'm going to give you a scriptural answer. Sometimes those things are the same. Sometimes they feel a little bit different and I'll get into that a little bit later. But here's the the logical understanding of it. If love is a choice, 
then suffering is a possibility. So what does that look like? If, there's, if, we only, if love was the only thing possible, then we would never have what the Bible calls free will. If, 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 if there was no suffering, if you had to love, if God said, you know what, you're going to love me, maybe you, you've done this before. I remember when, uh, when uh, software first came out in the 80s, you know, and you could get your hands on it. I, I wrote something in basic. I wrote a little program, and it was a little robot, and, it was, and the little robot just was, would tell me that it loved me. Because, <laughs> I don't know, I'm, I'm 13, so of course that's what I'm going to do, right? And so it was, I love you, I love you, I love you. I'm like, I love you too, but I really didn't, and it really didn't, right? It was a, it was a robot telling me that love, and, and it was amusing for a minute, and then it all goes away. And the same thing is true. If, if you don't have the possibility to say no to God, to say, if you don't have the possibility to miss the mark, if God says, this is me and this is who I am and this is what it means to love me, if you don't have the ability to say no to him, to not love him, then love is not real. It's an illusion. And that's part of the, the logical answer. So why did God give us free will? Is literally the only way that love could be possible. He did not want a robot. He wanted a relationship with a real person who could say no, right? So what would it look like? Because you ask this question all the time. If God was loving, then he would take away the suffering. The favorite one is, I don't want to serve a God that gives children cancer. And my answer to that is, neither do I. And you don't have to. Turns out that's not what God does. But what they're doing is they're equating something. They're saying, if this happens, then this is true. Now, I don't know if you know anything about math and equations, but just because you say that the letter X is this, your algebra teacher, I'm saying this from experience, may tell you that it's not actually X. But I'm like, did you not see? I worked out the problem perfectly. She said, you did, and you're wrong. <laughs> and that's why there's red all over your paper and why you should go into English and not math, which I did, right? So for God to remove evil, one of two, evil and suffering, for him to take evil and suffering out of the world, one of two things has to happen. First, he has to either remove your freedom of choice or he has to remove you. It's the only way that suffering could be removed from this world. Now hear this, one day, and we're going to get to this before I end this message, one day suffering will end. One day it will. It's coming. It's coming soon, as a matter of fact. But today's not that day. So here's the question is so rarely asked out of this logical mindset. If there is no God, who decides there's evil? right? Because this is what people say, I don't believe in God. Well, then why are you so angry with him all the time? <laughs> right? You see this all the time. I'm railing my hand at God going, God, you, 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 and I'm blaming him, and I'm screaming at him, and I'm yelling at him, and I'm basically going, if, if I was God, I would run this, whole, this thing totally differently. And God's like, hey, no problem. I'll let you run it for a little while. Let me, tell, let me see how you do. So I, I ran it for a little while, and I ruined it. <laughs> I ruined it by the time I was 12. I mean, it didn't take me long at all in free will to screw my life up. I don't know about you. Some people, maybe it takes them a little bit longer. My brother liked to watch people do stupid things until he finally got into stupid things, but he, he lasted a little longer than I did. But here's the thing. I, I know all of us, if, if you don't have a brother and sister, you know what it's like, those sibling relationships where you're arguing. So my brother was 11 years, he, he was 11 years behind me. I remember like it was yesterday, my mom came to me. She said, Dave, do you remember how we were going to give you a puppy? And I'm like, this is going bad already. <laughs> she said, wouldn't you like a little brother instead? And I said, no, I would rather have a puppy. 
And I remind my brother of that on regular occasions. You know, you, when he's irritating me, I'm like, you know, you could have been a puppy. I'm just saying my world would have changed had you been a puppy. But I didn't get what I want. I got a brother. But he was 11 years younger than me, so I was taking him, I was dropping him off in first grade when I was a senior in high school. And I used my little brother. We were too, there was too much age difference to really argue um, but I used him and abused him in every possible way, mostly is to go get me stuff. That was really nice because he had all this energy. But he was also a chick magnet. So I would take him on the weekends with me. Don't tell Karen. She's in kids' church. Um, <laughs> she knows. <laughs> she's actually, he's actually probably one way that I got connected with Karen. Anyway, that's an old story. But I would take him roller skating with me. And I would, you know, I would be sure to drive around the park parking lot several times and have him hang out the window so he was so stinking cute. He's not anymore. He's a big, ugly man, like 6'3", with a massive beard. He's actually not ugly. He's a good-looking guy. But he was so cute. And he would just draw the attention of every teenage girl within 100 miles. They was, oh, he's so cute. I was like, yeah, I raised him myself. You know, I treated him like a puppy, as you can imagine. So here's the thing. Anytime something would go wrong, and he wanted to blame me, which was rare because of the age difference so, so much, I would try to get to my mom and dad first to plead my case, right? Because he was so cute. He had that going for him, and I didn't anymore. I'm like, I'm going to lose unless I get there and argue my case, <laughs> right? But here's the thing. What if there was no parent, right? If we're arguing, if you and your brother and your sisters, if you were arguing and you run to mom and dad and there's no mom and dad to run to, then what, right? Because it, it, here's the thing. It turns out there has to be an authority to have a standard, Right and wrong has to come from somewhere. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis wrote this in his, in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, he said that right and wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe. He talks about the moment someone says you ought to have done this is an indication that they're appealing to a higher authority that has created a standard that you should abide by. Now, I don't have to, <laughs> right? I don't, I don't want to do right, the right thing, but if you do me wrong, you and I are going to have a conversation because that's not right. You shouldn't have done that. Like, if, you, if I do you wrong, though, I don't want to hear about it. I just want to, <laughs> you don't understand my circumstances. That's, that's what I do. I argue it. But right, does that make sense? And so it, there has to be an authority to have a standard. So you think about this. I remember coming back from England. I, w- I would, in, in England, they drive, if you don't know this, I, we used to have English people in the church, and I'd mess with them, especially on the 4th of July. It was my favorite holiday to say hello to an English person. But when I would come back from England, <laughs> I would go into Walmart or somewhere with a big parking lot, and it never failed. If, especially, I mean, during the middle of the day, it's no problem because, you know, you could tell where the traffic is. But if, if there's no one on the road, when I pulled out of one of those places, I invariably pulled onto the left-hand side of the road and drove down the left, left, left side of the road for a little ways until a car is coming at me, obviously, and I'm going, what an idiot, right? He's on the wrong side of the road. It turns out I was. But I would be feeling something's off here, right? Because, listen, we drive on the right side of the road. Right, right side of the road, and the English in all their colonies drive on the wrong side because everybody knows the left is wrong. Yeah, I, I, I saved up for that one for a long time. Anyway, so, but I'm getting, I'm getting off track. So here's the thing. Our belief in evil and suffering is actually proof that God exists, not proof that he doesn't. See, everybody wants to, to use evil and suffering. They're like, you know, if God, so like, who are you to define God? I love the, the fact that you're going to come to me and say, if God, as if somehow you're the authority, but you're not the authority. You were made by God, not, you don't get to create God. In any other religion, it works though. You know why? Because you're creating God so you can make him out to be any God you want him to be. 
The problem with that is it doesn't hold up to the evidence. What's the evidence say about who God is? What has been revealed, not just in Scripture, but also in, in the world that we live in, 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 the, in the natural world? Again, science, there's nothing wrong between science and God. God is not anti-science, never has been, never will be. He's just above it. He's not against nature, he's just above it. That's what supernatural means. It means above nature. And so for nature to try to define something that's above them is a foolish endeavor indeed. So suffering isn't evidence of a lack of love. It's actually proof and evidence that love exists. Well, how do I know that? Let me give you an example. Some of you guys have been to a counselor before. If you haven't, let me be a good pastor and tell you, go see somebody. <laughs> Work it out, right? But here's what will happen. They'll often take you into a difficult past because psychologists and psychiatrists will remind you that the only way you're going to get past something that happened to you, in the, you know, something in your past, some broken issue, some challenge, is not to stick your head in the sand, not to ignore it, not to find a safe place and get away from it, but to voluntarily pursue it, go after it. Because what you don't do is you don't get less afraid, you just get more brave. Understand that. You don't get less afraid. You just get more brave. And so, so they'll challenge. Counselors will come and say, I want to take you into a difficult past. And if you agree with that, they will harm you. <laughs> right? They won't hurt you because those are different things. Hurt is temporary. Harm is long term. You are harmed now. Right? You, are, you, you, have, you have something in your past has hurt you to the point where it's gotten to the, to the place where it's becoming permanent. And so, so a good counselor will take you back into a painful situation, remind you of it, walk you through it, to bring you through it on the other side. You will have a scar, but it will no longer be an open wound, right? Same thing with physical doctors. You understand this. I've got a scar on my arm where I hurt myself. I remember when I did it. I, I, I remember vividly that it happened because it hurt so bad when it happened. But now all it is is a scar. I can touch it. There's no pain, right? Because I'm on the other side of it. Physical therapist, uh, some of you guys know I've had uh, surgery on my shoulder recently. I'm about six weeks out, and so I'm starting to recover. And uh, my friend Arlene is one of the physical therapists, and I told her if she kept, if she kept hurting me, I was going to dox her in one of my sermons. <laughs> so if you want to mess with Arlene, you can go down and talk at health actions. They're great, but mess with her. So she would, she would come in, and she said, okay, I, I want to put your arm over here. And I'm like, my arm's not going to go over there because it hurt. She goes, yeah, it will. And I'm like, no, it won't. And so she strong arms me and pulls my arm over here and then puts it under the table, brings it over the top again and sticks it into my rib cage on the other side. I'm like, I don't think it's supposed to do that. She's like, no, it's fine. Just tell me, it can't be a stabbing pain. So I would lie and say it's a stabbing pain, right, to get her to stop. But here's the thing. If, if I don't submit to Arlene as a physical therapist, she is going to, every single week, she's going to hurt me. I told her one time, I said, Arlene, I don't mind that you're hurting me. I just have a problem with the fact that you smile about it all the time. I think you need, I think you need to go see the counselor that I'm going to mention in my, in my message, right? Because again, I don't, it, I don't mind the hurt. The hurt's not the problem because she, what she's trying to do is get me back to, to health and wholeness. So she's going to hurt me a little bit. The same thing with the surgeon. He went in and cut things open, and that just always fascinates me. And he reattached things with like screws like a mechanic, for goodness sake, right? And I, I mean, a well-educated mechanic, but still. And I'm like, okay, I don't like him for a little while. But I love him, and I recommend him all the time because he did a great job on my arm. And he's helping me come back into wholeness. Parents do this. When you discipline your kids, this morning I walked in and there's a bunch, we got a bunch of little, little girls in our church right running around. We, I think there's a few boys here and there, but there's a ton of little girls and they were back there trying to take over the world. 
And, and one of the little ones was really, she was, uh, Kinley, I think it was, was super unhappy because she got disciplined with all the rest of them. You know, she got caught up in it. She's the one who was talking, but was, none of the words were intelligible, right? She came in here, literally came in here just a few minutes ago, and she was telling me, eh, and mom, and, and spanking, and she knew those words, right? And she's weeping. I mean, she's like, and she was literally telling on her mom. I told you, she was telling on her mom. She's like, you're, you're a pastor. Do something about her. You know, can you not... <laughs> So being a good pastor, I tried to explain to this child that it's okay and your mommy loves me. And she's like, oh, oh no, she, she does not love me. I, I, I just told you why she doesn't love me and you're not getting it, right? But isn't that how we do? We do the same thing. When, when, when the hurt comes, when God says, hey, I want to take you into this thing, rather than going into it voluntarily saying, Lord, I'm, I'm choosing to say yes to come in, and again, not broken, not through broken people, but through healthy, whole people who can help, like that physical therapist who's had training, who knows, who's been there before actually themselves, can take me through it and bring me through the pain and through the suffering to the other side. See, there's something, the reason Arlene doesn't mind hurting me <laughs> regularly every week is because the other side of that is health and wholeness. And the smile she has, every, I hope, the smile she has every day when she's doing this is because she's seen it time and time and time again, and she knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I submit myself to that process, then on the other side of that thing, I'm going to be incredibly happy, right? But I'm not happy right now because it hurts. But I have to push past that, be mature, and go, I'm going to lean into some things that hurt voluntarily because when I do, something good is going to happen. So the presence in, of pain is not a lack of love. It's the evidence of it. But it raises a question that we come back to. Why do bad things happen to good people? So let me say this, and you're not going to like it. So let me prepare you ahead of time, especially anybody who watches this online. Why do bad things happen to good people? Here's one of the answers scripturally. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, this comes out of the Psalms 14 and Psalm 53, but it's, it's, uh, it's brought back again in the New Covenant. Paul's writing this to Christians. He says, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. So why do bad things happen to good people? There's no such thing as good people. But see, that's not how we think. We think, well, I'm... I'm good because, not because I'm actually good, but just because I'm better than that other guy over there. Isn't that what we do? We always compare ourselves to people who are worse than us. Because in the light of that, I look good. But if I'm going to be honest, I have to go back to Scripture and say, well, what is the standard for goodness? And the standard for goodness is it's God. It is perfection. It is the law. The Bible says the law teaches us. Right? It's, it's showing us, there's, it's a tutor that brings us to an understanding that nobody is good, that everybody is sin, everybody is falling short of the glory of God. He goes on to say that a little bit further in Romans. Everybody, everybody has missed the mark. What's the mark? The mark is God in his great love and his perfection and his kindness and his goodness and every good thing about him. And every single one of us have missed it. And because of that, we are destined for the painful um, resolution of that, which is destruction. There's only one thing left. When we've broken it so far, then, then we have removed ourselves from the presence of God. And yet, Jesus, who was the only one who was ever good, is the one who suffered the most on our behalf. 
There's only been one who was ever actually good, and that was Jesus. It's amazing. Only, the only time bad happened to a good person, he volunteered for it. Think about that. He didn't have to. He could, he could have called, and the Bible talks about this. On the cross, the angels were waiting at the edge of heaven with their swords drawn. You read this throughout the Old Testament where angels were sent to bring judgment to God's people, especially to, to people who have refused God. And when they came through, there was nobody left standing. They're powerful. They're incredibly powerful. And the Bible says every angel was on the edge of heaven looking over, waiting for one word from Jesus, and they would have wiped the slate clean and rescued him from the cross. And he wouldn't let them. Why? Because on the other side, there was something. There was something else on the other side of his suffering. The Bible says, for the joy, right? For the joy that was on the other side of the cross. He endured the cross. He didn't want to go. He, three times he asked if that cup could be taken from him. But he knew he had to volunteer for suffering to happen to him so he could begin to relieve the suffering of humanity. So in doing that, he separated himself from the Father after a lifetime of perfect intimacy. This is what he said on the cross, Matthew 27. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus came and suffered with us. He came and suffered for us, on our behalf, to rescue us from so much of what has come in this world. So I can't, I can't answer the question, why do bad things happen to perceived good people? We, you know, we've got scenarios of that in my life, but I can tell you this. I can tell you why it, it isn't happening. It's not happening because, it's not because God doesn't love you. God came and he poured out his mercy and his kindness on the cross. He came and, he, and the Bible says he gave us something on, that, that we didn't deserve, right? He took something from us. He took our sin. He took our brokenness. He took every wrong thing we'd ever done. And people were like, you know, I, my pastor's a good guy. Let me just tell you right now, if you knew some of the thoughts I've had in my lifetime, you would find another church. And then if you knew that pastor's thoughts that he'd had in his lifetime, You'd find another church, and then you would keep looking, <laughs> right? Because none of us have gotten it right, but Jesus did. Jesus got it right every single time, and when he went and he died on the cross, he did not die for his own sin. He died for the sins of all mankind, and we become recipients of that. So what does that mean? That means when Jesus came and he laid his life down for me, that he changed something forever, and us choosing to believe in the work that he did on the cross on our behalf, is what saves us. Not any good thing that we have ever done or ever will do. And that's where morality, in this, in, especially in the South and in churches almost worldwide now, moralism has infused into the church to think that if I do good, I get good. And so the enemy uses that on us constantly. It's like you haven't been perfect, therefore you don't deserve God's kindness. Or you don't deserve a good family, or a good job, or to get out of debt, or to be healed. My mom suffered that. I'm just saying to you, if you, don't, if you don't understand the gospel, what Jesus did on your behalf, the enemy will forever use suffering as, as something against you that you think you deserve, and you don't. Not because you don't deserve it, but because someone already suffered on your behalf. So here's the thought. Just think about this for a second. If Jesus took all of your sin, if he took all the pain, if he took all the heartache, all the brokenness, all the things that separated us from God, then why are you still bearing it? Here's the challenge, though. We live in the kingdom come. That's what Jesus said. The kingdom's coming. And, and, it, was, and, and it was established when the cross, when, when Jesus died on the cross, something happened for all of eternity. It had been planned from, from eternity past and will go into eternity future, right? 
Something happened on that day. Jesus paid that price once and for all. The Bible says it numerous times, especially in Hebrews. You don't go back. You can't come and ask Jesus to die on the cross again. He's already done it once. And once was all it took. Once for all time, he took all sin upon himself. So that, that whatever your sin costs you, the broken lives, the suffering, the pain, the heartache of of your stupid actions, my stupid actions, the things that I did to bring that suffering and those things upon myself, that coming to the knowledge of the truth in that Jesus came and laid himself down for us, took all of our suffering, all of our pain, all the heartache, Jesus dies on the cross and he cries out, God, my father, why have you forsaken me? That all of our pain and suffering was placed on Jesus, so much so that God, God who, who is his father, had sacrificed him, was all chosen, it was before time, I mean, it was all planned. And still in that moment, the Bible says the, the whole world became dark. And then something happened in the temple symbolically. The Bible says the curtain that separated the, the, the innermost sanctuary, the place where God dwells from the people, that if people went in there with any kind of sin in their life, they died. Something happened on that day. And that, the Bible says that curtain that some people believe was inches, if not feet thick, that that curtain split from the top to the bottom, fell apart. It was on the, in the moment where we're the offering the sacrifice of the lamb. It was so symbolic and it was so perfect. Why from the top? It was very specific from the top to the bottom. Why? Because there's nothing that we could do to rip that curtain from the bottom up. But God could come down and he could, he could offer a sacrifice that separated, that took the curtain, the thing that separated you from God, you and me from God because of our sin. Jesus paid it all on the cross and now there is no longer a dividing curtain between you and God. So when the enemy comes and reminds you, it's like, you don't deserve God. Turn that into a sermon against him. Right? I actually don't deserve God, which is all the more powerful to understand his grace and his mercy and his kindness. Amen? So here's the beautiful thing. Even though the Bible says we're going to suffer, it doesn't say we'll miss suffering. There are things that happen. We're all going to die. I know Some of you guys don't believe it, but I looked it up, and statistically, 10 out of 10 people are going to die, right? We're going to, here's the thing, though, we're going to rise again, and there's going to come a day, the Bible says, when, this is Revelation 21, 4, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow nor crying or pain. All these things are going to be gone forever. There's coming a day. It's not today. It's not today. But there's coming a day. Something better is coming. Something better is on the other side. There's no more loss. There's no more sickness. There's no more shame. There's no more death. There's going to be no more grief, no more depression, no more abuse, no more crying, no more pain. But we don't live there yet, which means we have a job to do. Our job, what is it? We have been called to be on mission with Jesus. That we're not just, he just doesn't come and rescue us from the pain and the suffering and the battle and the heartache and, and the war. He doesn't rescue us. He calls and he comes in and he empowers us so that we can go into the battle and go into the war and that we can win on his behalf. But we're not there yet. So in my circle, I lost my mom. I shared this last week. I lost my mom when I was in my early 20s. She was in her early 40s. And I, every Mother's Day, it pops back up again, and I'm reminded. Thankfully, the pain, for the most part, has, is not there anymore. Every once in a while, it will come back, but the pain's not there anymore And because there's coming a day. There's a day I know I'm going to sit down with her, and the smile she's going to bring, and, and asking, I mean, as much as I miss her, I would love to have her back. She's not coming back. Why would she come back from heaven? There's no way she'd want to do that. We prayed with a young girl in our church out in Tyler, Texas, and she said, I can't forgive my dad. And I said, 
and you have to because and she, he was already dead. I said, you have to because it, it's killing you. And she said, if you knew what my dad did to me, you wouldn't forgive him either. And I said, that may be true. <laughs> but I want to challenge you that you're going to have to do it because what you're doing is you're killing you. Your dad's going to have to pay for that or he's going to have to have let Jesus pay for it. Somebody pays. Sin, sin doesn't come away free. Somebody pays. There's no one who's getting away with anything, I promise you that. So either you're going to pay for your sin or Jesus is going to pay for it. Truth is, he paid for it all, but you can choose to pay for it yourself. And she told me, in that, I brought Karen over when we were praying for her. She told me that from the time she was eight, nine years old, her dad molested her. I mean, every, almost every day. And then one, the worst thing that caused her to leave, she said she was about 15, 16 years old. Her dad left her at home and a friend came over to watch her, literally chained her in the basement and sexually abused her over the entire weekend. And I look at that and I'm just telling you in the moment, I was 25 years old when she told me as a young pastor. I'm struggling. My goodness, what do you say to something like that? What do you say to that kind of hurt and pain? And all I could say is, there's only one person who could ever relate to that, and that's Jesus. Because what they did to you, right, as hard as it was for you to, to try to forgive them, what they did to you, Jesus saw the brutality of that better than anybody ever did and said, I'm willing to pay for that on their behalf. What kind of of love is that. So there's coming a day when the pain and the heartache is not going to be here. But that day is not today. So it makes it real easy in a snapshot to see the circumstances around us and go, God's not good. He doesn't love. He doesn't care about humanity. But that's just not true. Remember Asaph? Let me close with this. He said, does God even know what's happening? When you look around the circumstances of suffering, all these things happening, does God even know? He said, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? There's trouble all day. Every morning brings pain. And then later on, he wrote this. He said, when I tried to understand all this, now he's getting to the real issue of his own heart. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. That's an honest heart, right? And then this is what he said, and it's so powerful. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Until I came into the presence of God, until I submitted myself to God's plan, to God's understanding, to God's way of thinking, to God's perspective, until I came into him and sat down with him, until something happened where I felt eternity for the first time, where eternity began to be my perspective, and I stopped looking at just this year, you know, the year that I've just had, or this lifetime that I've had, or this, the history of humanity. I stopped looking at that as much as that tries to tell me something, and I began to look at an eternity and say, there's a perspective from eternity that if I give myself to that, if I submit myself to that, Everything begins to change. And this is what he said in, in verse 26, Psalm 73. He said, my flesh and my heart may fail. And if you've ever been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I've been there, you've been there, to the point where I just, I just hang my head. Sometimes I just weep. Sometimes I just weep. We, we had uh, our secretary, dear friend, Beth, Joshua and Beth Godwin. Beth was, you know, she was serving in our church faith, faithfully. She's amazing, helping to oversee our kids' church. She's incredible in a million different ways. They have a child with, you know, uh, that has some, had some challenges, born with some birth defects, and so special needs, and so they're pouring their lives out. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you the suffering they already received. She has a, a stroke, a hemorrhaging stroke in her head, something basically blows up inside. The surgeon came. I got there before Joshua did, 
and the surgeon came, and as soon as he came out, Joshua was standing there. Joshua didn't even have time to do anything or think about anything or even pray for that matter. The surgeon came out and he said, if we don't operate on her right now, she is going to die. And if we operate her, I'm going to operate on her, I'm going to be honest, she may not live. As a matter of fact, he said, I, I hate to say this, but she probably won't. You need to prepare yourself for that. What do you want me to do? Joshua said, do, do what you can. He goes, but I'm going to trust in the Lord. And we prayed together, and she was in surgery, and then the surgeon comes out, neurosurgeon comes out, and he goes, I do not understand, I don't understand how this woman is still alive, but she is. And she's still, she's been bedridden for over a year now, but she's gotten into, recently gotten into a chair, she's starting to communicate, she's starting to use words where she couldn't before. The, all the stuff that happened that they said there's no possible way she could ever recover. As a matter of fact, the doctors had no hope whatsoever she would ever come out of veg, vegetable st- stage. Nothing against doctors. I love doctors. We've got an amazing doctor in our church this morning. They're, he's faithful, loves Jesus. He knows that his skills are only limited, but God's are not. And this woman comes out of that. She, she's moving her hand, and Joshua filmed it and took it to the doctors in a consultation and said, you need to do something different because she's coming out of it. They're like, it can't be true. It's not possible. And he showed them the picture and changed everything. So here's the thing. I can't explain that. And I, I cry often. I'm just being honest. I cry often when that comes up. I'm like, God, I, I don't want that for Beth. I mean, they were struggling already. I can't even imagine the struggle for her. She's so frustrated because she, she was a language major. She, she, she could, you know, sign language. She, she studied. She was a... She's amazing in a million ways. And Joshua was taking care of the, the child, and Beth was helping, and now Joshua's taking care of Beth and a child with special needs. And I look at that and go, it's not fair. I don't like it. If, if God's a God of love, why'd that happen to Beth? Why'd that happen to Joshua? And I have to ask that question, but I have to be open to say, God, there are some things in this world that I'm probably not going to understand on this side of things until I get to the other side. And I have to make a decision. God, are you good? Because the jury is still out. There's been prophetic words over Beth. You're going to be a, a two-miracle family. At some point, you know, people have seen pictures of her at some point on, standing on a stage telling her story about what happened and the, the statistics and, and the, you know, the, the chances of her not making it and the fact that she's already gone, you know, every single day for her is a miracle coming out of it. And I, I can't give you an answer for everything, but I can give you this. I can tell you that God is good. You have to make a decision about what you're going to do in the gap. The Bible is not contrary to suffering. Context of suffering and evil and pain is not contrary to the Bible at all. It's central to the Bible. The Bible doesn't, it doesn't hide it. As a matter of fact, Christianity is the only world religion that makes sense of, gives meaning to, offers a solution for the evil and the suffering we experience. So let me say this as I just pray for everybody. If you're hurting right now, Sometimes what's happening is the challenge, whether it's physical pain, it's emotional suffering, it's recovering, maybe some of the stuff I mentioned, you have some of those things happening in you as well. I don't have all the answers for you, but I can tell you this, that it's not because God doesn't love, and it's not because God's not good. And so the only way we're going to find solutions to these, and we've seen this, we've seen miracles that answer the challenges of you know, Jesus answers the question one time when he heals somebody, was his parents evil? Did they sin? Did he sin? And Jesus just says, he makes this comment that drove me crazy and still to this day, he said, none of those things happen, but it's for the glory of God. And I'm like, so here's the thing. The scripture says it this way, and I'll leave you with this. It says that God can take what the enemy meant for harm, right? Long-term evil and suffering and pain. 
and he can make it work for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. There's some connection to aligning your heart and aligning your life to God. Some connection to submitting yourself to the God that can actually change the world, that can actually speak into the little R reality with a big R reality, reality from heaven. And I've suffered surgery, and I'm going through the recovery process, and I would have much rather have a testimony of God healed me supernaturally 100%. But he has done that in the past. And I've seen him heal people of cancer. I've seen all those things happen, and I know this, that God is good. And anything on this side that I don't understand, I will not, and I challenge you to do the same. I will not attribute it to God. I just won't. People say you're naive, and I'm, and I'm just saying, well, maybe you've created a God that works for you. But I refuse to do that. I'm going to be intellectually honest, and I'm going to let the God who has revealed himself show me who he is. And then I'm going to let him direct me into being part of the solution to the pain and the suffering and the evil in this world rather than just blaming him and then being part of the problem. And I challenge you to do the same. So let me just pray for you. Jesus, we love you this morning. Lord, we don't understand it all. But um, Lord, we don't want to hide behind that your ways are higher than ours, but it's still a truth. And so Lord, what we do know is this, is that more we lean into you, the more we discover of why you do what you do. The more we discover, Lord, that you have a plan, that you have a purpose, that you have rhyme and reason, that you make sense. Lord, it may not be my sense. It may not be logical to me. It may not be something this world or this earthly understanding completely gets. But Lord, the more I submit to your wisdom, the more I understand of who you are, and not just who you are, but who I am in you and what you've called me to do. Lord, I've prayed many, many times. I'm tired. I'm sick of the pain and the suffering and the heartache of the world. I'm sick of even fighting it. I prayed that prayer, and many of us this morning, we prayed that prayer. But Lord, when it's all said and done, we submit ourselves, Lord, to your purpose and your plan. We say, yes, Lord, even if we don't understand 100%, we lean in and say, God, help my unbelief. Help me understand. Lord, give me a spirit of wisdom. Help me number my days, Lord, so that I have a spirit of wisdom about me and understand you and your plan and your process for my life. And Lord, I submit to you at the end of the day, I have to make a choice to submit to you and to your plan and your purpose in my life. Teach me, Lord. And Lord, I choose not to ascribe to you the things of the enemy, Lord, and not to ascribe to you the broken things of this world, Lord, not to say that you caused that, Lord, but you did allow it. And Lord, I don't understand that fully, but I do understand, Lord, that part of the reason is you've called me to be a solution. And as I walk with you, Lord, I'm going to see signs and wonders and miracles. And I'm going to see answers. I'm going to see suffering alleviated. I'm going to see evil destroyed and pushed back, Lord. I'm going to see that, Lord. And I would have, I would have been so discouraged, as Scripture says, if I did not see your goodness in the land of the living. So thank you for heaven. But Lord, thank you for here too that we're beginning to see your plan and your process in our, in our day and time, and we submit ourselves to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much. We'll have our ministry team up here. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next weekend.